welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Why is PDA so confusing to parents, to practitioners, to therapists, to pediatricians, and from other people looking in on your child's life? So today I wanna talk about what makes PDA so confusing for two reasons. One, I've been getting a ton of questions because I have the new Paradigm Shift cohort opening on March 12th, for those of you who are on the wait list and March 16th to the general public. And I wanna answer these questions before you commit or invest to spending three months with me. And the second reason is I wanna answer these questions. Hi everybody, hi from the UK. (laughs) Because these are the exact questions I had five years ago, four years ago in my journey when I was so confused with my child. And so I'm gonna take the questions, answer them and sort of illustrate anecdotes from my own life to hopefully make them more tangible for you guys. So the first question that I get a ton from people is, my child doesn't seem autistic, can they be PDA? And this is a great question because there's lots of layers to it, but yes, even if your child doesn't seem autistic, they can absolutely be PDA. But one of the reasons parents ask this question is because we're sort of stuck in this idea of what autism looks like. And it's usually like a young white boy who doesn't make eye contact, who doesn't have friends and who has different verbal development, right? Which is a very narrow definition of what autism actually is. And if you're working with practitioners who have that older version of what autism is, it's gonna be very, very hard for them to see it, right? And another nuance to this is, The Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5, which is what defines what we can diagnose in the US, but also in other countries that look to the DSM-5, the categorization and definition of what was included in autism was expanded to include in 2013 to include both pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified and what was then called Asperger's. So if you're working with a practitioner who has most of their experience and training from before 2013, they're going to have one version of what autism looks like based on that pre-2013 version. And so it can be helpful to look to practitioners who are, you know, some of the words to look for are like adult presentations, female expressions, and practitioners who are younger because they're not going to be stuck in that pre-2013. So that's just one thing to think about. The second thing to understand is that when a child is in burnout or near their threshold of tolerance, it's very hard to see the communication differences that would be more obviously characteristic of a child who is autistic, right? 
because there's not much communication going on at all. You're just seeing the threat response activating, which is like fight, flight, freeze, quote, behavior, right? And often what parents find is that as they support the, the nervous system and get the child away from the threshold of tolerance, they can see some of the things that are social communication differences, right? Um, but sometimes we can't see it when we're just seeing the threat response and what looks like defiance. And there's another element to this that when parents start to make big shifts, like for example, this happens a lot in my paradigm shift program where parents really start to make changes, mindset shifts, implementation of new strategies, and then their child quote appears more autistic. And part of this is because the child is unmasking even around their own family, right? Like my son started stimming verbally a lot more, which is self stimulatory behavior, just like repeating words aloud over and over or songs that he had heard on YouTube. So that's something else to keep in mind. And then finally, um, you know, when we think of restricted and repetitive interests, and I'm using this language from the DSM-5 so that you can use it to bridge the gap if you are trying to get access um, for your child with professionals in the autism space or it going towards an evaluation, we want to frame the restricted and repetitive interest in a way that's social in nature, right? Because often our children aren't like in a corner playing with trains <laughs> repeatedly forever, right? In the stereotype, quote, end quote, they are very focused on a particular thing for a period of time and then they drop it or it's social in nature and they're like, quote, fixated or focused on another child, another parent, another person, a therapist or a character. Okay, so I just want to say that I also want to give you guys clarity on the fact that like, I had to fight my way to the diagnosis and nobody believed me, right? So like, I argued with a speech language pathologist for a full hour about like, no, you're not understanding this so much to the point that they brought in a supervising developmental pediatrician. Okay, and this was like very uncomfortable for me as a recovering people pleaser and someone who like really doesn't like to engage in conflict or to upset others. But I was like, I have to do this because this is a the truth B, what's going to get him the support he needs, whether it's a service dog access to insurance coverage for our occupational therapy or his school supports and so you know, I fought and fought and fought. And ultimately, this great developmental pediatrician who had um, an autistic son herself, not PDA, was she finally was like, if you really think that he's, he's autistic, I'm going to trust you. And I was like, without a doubt in any molecule or bone in my body, 100%. And so she gave us the diagnosis. And I just want to be super transparent about that. Because it's not easy, right? Like, it's not like my son just went in and they were like, oh, yeah, for sure. He's autistic. Like, I had to fight for it. And I obviously got off the evaluation because it was virtual at the time because it was during the pandemic. And we completely wept and like totally felt panicked and was like, everybody hates me, which is my go-to when like I upset people. But it was worth it. And now... As I said before, now that his 
threat has his overall cumulative threat and activation has subsided we can she can much more clearly see patterns in his behavior that align with an autistic expression so i wanted to share that with you and also invite you to you know not attach too much to the autism thing if it's freaking you out because it totally freaked me out at the beginning like when i lived when i was doing my doctoral field work in colombia south america my husband was with me helping me collect data and i remember reading this i think it was a washington post article about this journalist whose son was autistic and they communicated through disney um disney movies and i like obsessively kept reading this i was pregnant at the time and i was so scared and then i read far from the tree and i got through the deaf chapter and i got halfway through the autism chapter and was just so freaked out that i was like i need to return this book to the library but what i want to say also is that like it's not as scary at all as i thought it was and in fact it's been like such a relief to understand my son as autistic and it's a part of his identity that he resonates with so I wanted to share that honestly as well. Um, okay, the next question that people have is, um, my child seems really typical sometimes. And this sort of goes with that first question, but it can sneak up on you even if you're like further along in your journey with a PDA child, teen, or even spouse or co-parent, because a lot of you are. Um, where it's like, but wait, like they seem totally typical. And is this really a thing? And like, do we need all these accommodations? But here's the thing, like, there are like three elements that can be going on there. One is when a PDA child is fully accommodated, and if they don't have other things going on, like OCD, chronic illness, pandas, all those other things, which often are you know, there's a high correlation of other brain complexities and, and, you know, immune system differences that go with having an autistic brain. So I just want to do that caveat. But when you have a PDA child who's out of burnout and fully accommodated, there are times when they can seem very typical because they're in their thinking brain, right? And they can access their heart space and their frontal lobe. The second thing is just pointing out and I get this question all the time, like, can a PDA child completely appear totally typical in one setting and not in another? And yes, like, absolutely. That's super common um, for high masking, which is Rachel, Rachel Dorsey, the autistic SLP's term, at least the first time I heard it, um, super high masking. And they're going to be masking the threat response in places where they do not perceive safety. It's not a conscious decision. So it's very much often school or with grandparents or even with another parent, like for co-parents, like maybe one parent doesn't believe in PDA or parents are separated. And it's like the kid behaves, quote, behaves really well for the parent who doesn't believe in, in PDA and doesn't accommodate. It's because they're masking. Um, and when that's within a family that's not separated, that can be a really triggering awareness of like the degree of safety being so different between parents. But I want to name it here. Um, and then the other thing is the cumulative nature 
of nervous system activation, which I talk a lot about because I think it's something that gets missed in this space of like, and this confused me so much too. Like I'm a social scientist and like, I'm trained to understand causality in human behavior. Granted, it was like not child development, but it's like I'm trained to think in like cause and effect and variables and what are we controlling for and like what's the outcome, the dependent outcome and like all different methods. And so when my son was having like severe fight flight expressions and I didn't know about PDA, I was trying to understand causality and I would like track like with an Excel spreadsheet, like how many minutes of screen time, how many minutes of play, what's the weather outside, like trying to control for any variable. And what I finally understood what is, is that like what happens right before the behavior is often the tipping point, not the antecedent. And so that's another thing to keep in mind. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.